Welcome everyone. My name is Frederick Eriksson and I'm one of the directors here at eSight and it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest for the conversation we're going to have in the next hour, Dr. Christian Blue. Welcome to this event. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, um, let me just say a few words about you and the book that you just have published. So you are the author of what I would say is a very interesting book called Europe's Trade Strategy for the Age of Geoeconomic Globalization. And it's a book that was released just a few weeks ago, so it's very timely. But this book was the also the result of a sabbatical you spent at the European University Institute in the first half of 2020, just as the pandemic was washing over us uh, in, in Europe. But these issues are not new to you because you follow them closely in your job, of course, which is at the Bertelsmann Stiftung, where you are the senior expert for globalization, international economic and trade policy. You have written extensively about trade and international economic policy, and you obtained your PhD in international relations from Cambridge on a dissertation about the political economy of fiscal rules. So I'm very much looking forward, Christian, to the conversation that we're going to have. And I wanted to start with more of a defining question, which is related also to title. You you cover very much in your book geoeconomic globalization. So I want us to start talking a little bit about what is geoeconomic globalization and what is new about it. We are later going to talk about the forces that you think are shaping current geoeconomic trends, but let's get going on the concept itself to start with. Is this something on the horizon, meaning that it is something you think will happen in the future, or is it something that is already over us now? Is it about growing trade, sort of great power rivalry in trade and the economy, like for instance, the growing trade frictions between the United States and China, or is it something more broader than that? Yes, that is indeed the key question. So geoeconomic globalization, I think, is something that we already see, that we see increasingly, and that is currently sort of in a, in a kind of combat with the globalization that we knew, which I call in my book, the liberal globalization. And we don't yet know which of the two is eventually going to triumph. But as we see this, this battle unfolding, I think it's quite interesting to think about geoeconomics more and what it means. So what do I mean by this? I mean, it's not really something new that trade powers use their influence to pursue political aims. But we see this in a completely different quality. And we see it also in a way that countries create dependencies with other countries with a precise aim to be able to exploit them for political purposes in the future. And that's quite different from the liberal globalization that we've seen so far, which by and large was, was dominated by creating market access for private actors and which was accompanied by a set of rules and governing institutions. So if we talk about sort of geopolitics, and I, I assume that it's something which is quite close to geoeconomics, I think a lot of people would think in the first place which that it's something about geography, meaning that we perhaps are seeing the return of uh, different 
alliances or different conflicts that are more shaped along geographical lines than we were accustomed to over the past couple of decades. Uh, others may think about it as something which relates to the use of power and the use of more raw economic power in order to uh, get other, other countries to behave in fashions that they want them to behave. Is this sort of the context for the geoeconomic analysis as well, or it's what I take it from what you're saying, it's a little bit more complex than that? It, it goes in that direction. So I think you're definitely right. I mean, there is the geo aspect to it. You implement a certain policy because you want to achieve a goal that is aimed at a specific geography. So the definition basically that I use in the book, which I've borrowed from someone else, is that basically foreign policy is a geostrategic interaction. And geostrategic has, has two components to it. One is the classical geopolitic tools that we know, diplomacy, warfare, the like. But I think what we can see is that countries are more and more unwilling to use these tools because there's not much domestic support, because they're extremely costly. And the tools to which they eventually resort instead are geoeconomic tools. So that is use everything you have in your economic policy toolkit for geostrategic aims. And that is, of course, to a very large extent trade policy, but it's not limited to that. It's also investment policy. It can be innovation policy. It can be sort of infrastructure projects that are created in a way that you use it for a certain influence. It can really mean quite a lot of things. You talk about in the book, and you alluded to it also in the beginning of the conversation, the concept, the weaponization of interdependence. What is that? So that's precisely what I sort of try to hint at. I mean, geoeconomic globalization or the arrival of geoeconomics does not mean the end of globalization because you still need ties with other countries in order to use them to exert influence. So what you would like to do if you sort of the model case is that you create an asymmetric dependency of another country on you. So you would dominate a specific, be it a trade in a specific kind of good. It can also be being in possession of a specific kind of infrastructure. Suppose you are a country with a large port and next to you is a landlocked country, which has to go through you in order to have access to the world. That gives you quite a bit of geoeconomic power. And once you have this, this asymmetric trade relationship, then you can uh, use that for power politics. This is, of course, different if trade relations are more or less symmetric. Then you cannot use this trade relationship to really exert power because, well, you have to be aware that the trade partner might try to back at you and hurt you back in case you hurt him. So that's really a defining characteristic of geoeconomic globalization, that you are very strategic about engaging and sort of taking possession of specific sectors, of specific infrastructures that give you leverage over other players. All right. Can it also be, for instance, countries that have access to strategic resources, and that can be minerals, for instance. So they, they portion out access on the basis of 
more of a political analysis, which is that, well, we, we want to build a, a dependence from another country on access to our strategic resource here, because that can be useful for political purposes at a later point. So we don't accept broader market rules, which is that countries can compete on fair terms about access or sort of creating contracts around this particular strategic resource. Yes, definitely. I mean, we, we've seen this quite a lot actually already over the past decades when it comes to the question of energy supply. There, of course, it was essential to avoid being overly dependent on a single provider of, of energy. And um, now with Green Deal, there's actually quite huge development going on. How do you deal with the geopolitics behind new sources of energy? What consequences does it really have when you switch from fossil energy sources to, to more renewable ones in geoeconomic terms? This, this is quite a fascinating subject, which, I mean, I continue to read about now, and uh, it, it's becoming increasingly interesting and complex. So what would you say, Christian, is, is the European Union a geoeconomic actor? Is it a strong geoeconomic actor in the world, or would you point to other countries that have subjected their own foreign economic policies to the geoeconomic analysis more than Europe has done? Yeah, I think the EU is a geoeconomic actor, which is no surprise, because I think there's hardly any country in the world that is completely exempt from thinking about geoeconomics in one way or other. Just the simple fact that the EU has used sanctions to achieve political gains, for example, vis-a-vis -vis Russia, that's an illustration that the EU is aware of its economic influence, its economic power, and also capable of using this to achieve political aims. But I would say that the EU is not really an ideally placed to be at the forefront of geoeconomics. And I would also argue that the EU doesn't really want to see too much of a geoeconomic globalization. So the EU struggles um, where trade policy and foreign policy overlap. Um, we've seen that again and again when we've had discussions whether or not there should be sanctions against a specific country, whether or not sanctions should be harder or milder, whether they should be prolonged or not. And that's just an illustration that it's the EU is fairly diverse in its foreign policy interests, and it's sometimes really difficult to get a common denominator amongst the EU member states. And that, that is a disadvantage compared to other big markets, which have a completely streamlined foreign policy, like the United States or like, like China. Also, I think it's in the European DNA, really, to seek the liberal globalization that I've talked about. So the EU is a trading power in the world. It is engaged much more in trade than many other countries. It's, it's more open than, for example, the US. And that means that it has less interest to see geoeconomics rise, because obviously when let me take the example of the sanctions. If you if you launch sanctions and against another country, you hurt the other country, but you also hurt yourself. And you can do that up to a point, but uh, at some point it really starts hurting yourself. 
So the EU, I argue in my book, has actually an interest in strengthening the level of globalization, strengthen its institutions, and to create an atmosphere of flip and um, dominance of rules in global aid as much as it possibly can. That may not be enough. I think there's also an argument for the EU to develop a defensive geoeconomic capability. But I think the primary emphasis really for the EU is this creation of stability. When I was talking about the defensive capability, I mean, we, we've seen that China, for example, has, uh, this is for me a bit the model case that influenced my thinking quite a lot. I had a trade dispute, which I think is still ongoing with Australia, which had origins to deal with the Australian government being in favor of an investigation of the origins of COVID and so on. And China used the fact that it is an important export market for Australia to really exert a lot of political leverage. So suppose for some reason, something like that happened between China and the European Union or a single EU member state, how, how would the EU respond? I think currently we would be pretty ill-equipped to really respond to this. So I think what the EU should actually give itself is, first of all, a monitoring function. I mean, suppose that a country wants to use geoeconomic tools against the EU, where would be vulnerabilities and how could the EU respond to that? I mean, where is there maybe a different kind of dependency which, which gives the EU a leverage to, to strike back? And the idea would be that such a defensive instrument creates a kind of deterrent and thus makes the use of geoeconomic tools more likely to start with, more unlikely to start with. And uh, then hopefully that would contribute to the more stable environment that I've already described. That question, I think, leads us straight away to the new EU trade strategy that was launched by the European Commission less than a week ago. How would you review that trade strategy from what you've just been talking about? Does it include some of these new instruments that you were talking about? Uh, is it striking the right balance between, on the one hand, trying to encourage improvement of global trade rules and favoring liberal globalization at the same time? On the other hand, you have sort of these more strategic uh, issues that you're talking about. Yes, um, I, I think I'm, I'm on the whole actually very much positively surprised by uh, the new EU trade strategy. It starts off with a bit of a, I, you could call it a philosophical section that describes a bit the developments that are going on in the world and to which the EU needs to respond. And there, really, the analysis is very, very close to what I write in my book. So I think in, in terms of diagnostics of the world, the authors of the official strategy and myself, we are quite aligned. There is a bit of a difference then in the, the second part of the strategy where they actually go through the specific steps of what needs to be done. There's still some, some agreement, so both my my book and the official strategy argue that WTO reform is something that has really utmost priority. For me, this is part of creating a stable environment, reinvigorating rules-based governance of globalization. And 
making sure that liberal globalization is able to stand up against this new type of globalization. There is also an emphasis on risk management, a realization that there are many changes, not only to deal with geoeconomics, but also other sources that make the world the riskier place and that needs to be dealt with. And I'm very happy to see that sort of reflections that were audible maybe last spring, that we need to reshore and so on, that I don't find those anymore in the new EU strategy. This is very much commitment as I see it to openness. So that's again an aspect which I think is very good because it would be just very poor risk management and to reclude upon oneself and focus on domestic production and it would have huge welfare implications as well. So I'm very happy to see that aspect. I also think that the strategy largely goes in the right direction when it comes to putting an emphasis on sustainability, in particular uh, climate change and digital aspects of trade and we can get into that later if you like. But what I'm maybe missing a little bit in this strategy is in fact dealing concretely with threats linked to geoeconomics. Geoeconomics is there in the philosophy section at the beginning, but then I didn't really find a corresponding action in the later stages of the strategy. The only thing that I did find is the creation of an anti-coercion instrument that is meant to help the EU escape from being put under pressure by other countries. Now, I find that very interesting, but unfortunately there's very, very little in the text that gives detail what this is and how it's supposed to function. Let's get back to your book and go more into depth about that. You outline in your book two different types of megatrends that are shaping the conduct of international economic policy. Some of these megatrends are non-political and other trends are political. And if we start to talk about the non-political megatrends that are in a way inevitable and it doesn't matter so much what individual governments do, they go, we're going to be shaped by them anyway. What are the, you would say, sort of the big megatrends that inevitably will force themselves upon us if they aren't doing that already? So actually, when I set out to, to write the book, I didn't think I was going to end up writing a book with the title Geoeconomic Globalization in it. The idea was more really to understand what do we already know about how the world is going to evolve in the next 10 or 20 years. And I was indeed actually at the outset thinking more about the non-political megatrends. So that's in particular climate change, of course, but it's also demographic change. The changes we see in the world of technology. And then later I discovered that we also have a frequent, uh, a rising frequency of epidemics, which has uh, huge repercussions for the trade world, as we've seen over the course of the last year. So those were really the elements I started thinking about. And it was only later that I realized it's really not possible to think about all these trends without thinking also about political developments. And geoeconomics really is at the forefront of the political megatrends, but there is also the rising protectionism that we've seen in many countries linked to an eroding consensus that openness and globalization are forces for good. So that's also something to think about. Then 
of course, linked to geoeconomics, but not uh, exclusively to that. You have the big power competition between the US and China, which in itself is going to, to have huge effect on international threat. So you, you have these plethora of megatrends that I sort of try to bring together and then answer the question, what does it mean for EU trade strategy? And going into some of these megatrends, because I think they are interesting, and I think you also write very interesting about them. I mean, you start off with an analysis about shifts in relative economic power in the world. The fact that the world has already changed, or the world economy has already changed quite fundamentally over the past 30 years with rising global market shares for countries like China, but many other countries, and of course, declining market shares for countries that regions that previously had very high global market shares, for instance, United States and European Union. And this trend is going to accelerate in the future as growing incomes across the world inevitably will mean that uh, other countries also take up a larger share of, of global trade, of global income, of uh, global global markets. What do you think that entails for Europeans, for Americans, and from others that are basically in the same position in the sense that we have a shrinking relative economic size? Should it make us sort of more defensive or should it make it make us sort of more interested in looking for opportunities to engage with other countries in the world that may more be sort of on the rising trend? I ask because there is at least in 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 both Europe and America, I think you can find this underlying sentiment, which is that the world now is getting much more complicated when America and Europe doesn't wield the same type of power anymore and cannot sort of determine the rules for global exchange in the same fashion as they could do in the past. And that leads some politicians to think more in terms of having to become more defensive against the rest of the world. Another way to look at it is, of course, that, well, in terms of generating new supply, generating new technology, generating new innovations, the world has become a lot more equalized. And that means if we want to prosper and have access and be at the technological frontier in our parts of the world, we need to engage more with, with other countries because the talent base in the world is growing. And it basically means that a lot more innovation is going to come from outside Europe and outside China, sorry, outside the United States in the future. Um, so how do, we, how do we balance these things? Very interesting question. I mean, the demographic shifts are very profound and probably also very, very consequential. So currently, the EU is already making up only a small share of world population. If if I remember the number right, it's about 8% of world population, and we are going to be down to half of that in 20 years' time. That's really a tiny fraction of the world. Yet, at the same time, that doesn't mean that Europe, the attractiveness of the European market, is going to disappear completely. I mean, Europe is still going to be one of the most prosperous regions in per capita terms, and that makes Europe an attractive market. And as an attractive market, the EU will have some market power, I think, but less than it has today. It will not become completely a rule taker when it comes to international trade. It will retain a certain ability to shape global rules, but it will be less than today. There are various implications linked. I mean, one is if really geoeconomics is at the core of 
trade relations in the future? How do you cope with this as an increasingly diminishing power? And one of the answers that I give to this is you need to seek alliances. And those alliances, I, I believe, should be with the US, which are going to be relatively stable in their share of the global economy. It also has interesting implications, for example, vis-a-vis -vis China. So we see already that the Chinese labor force is has been declining for a couple of years now. And China is going to be hit very hard by demographic shifts more than many other countries because of the hangover of past politics. And I think this could actually have interesting repercussions on policymaking in China. When China at some point will likely be the largest economy in the world, but see itself more and more under pressure from emerging competitors, which could be India, which could maybe be parts of Africa, which could be other regions in Asia. I think China will actually find that a rules-based international order is also something that serves Chinese national interest fairly well at that point. So. That is a change that I think would be very rational in China, although, frankly, I, I see that less in Chinese policymaking than, than we've seen it maybe some years ago. About demographic change, there is another element there that really struck me. So there's some re research, it's, it's not much, but there's some, some research that suggests that older economies are also less innovative. And maybe that's not written in stone, but of course, the capability to innovate is an important source of wealth. Um, it's also an important source of market power. And for Europe to retain really as much influence as it can in the world, it's quite important to pay attention to what is actually happening to its ability to innovate. What we have seen over the last decade is really an explosion in innovation and research in the US and in China, whereas Europe has continued on a positive but very gradual path. And I don't know if it's possible, but I think it's really important that Europe thinks about its ability to innovate and tries to develop this capacity as much as it possibly can. I think that is very important, Christian. And I think it's also a very important point in, in the broader context of policymaking. And it is important in the sense that I think it's easy in broader discussions around the geopolitics of trade or the geoeconomic analysis to jump to conclusions that we need to have more instruments in order to defend ourselves. and. I think there is a good merit to have uh, instruments to protect against unfair trade practices from other countries. I think it's also important to have instruments to sharpen our abilities to open up markets abroad and ideally get other countries to broadly conform to liberal rules for how we want the economy to work. But at the heart of it, it, it seems to me that the capacity you have as a nation or as a region to really shape outcomes in other parts of the world depends a lot more about what you put to your table yourself. What is your capacity to deliver innovation, new technologies, to have the firms that everyone else wants to have access to because they contribute something important to other economies as well? 
so in that sense, the, the proposition seems to be that if we want to be powerful in the world, the best way is to be economically dynamic and that we generate lots of interesting new innovations and technologies that other ones to have access to, no? I completely agree with that. And I think it would be wrong to really give into this feeling like there is a world out there that is risky and hence we need to concentrate on ourselves. I think that would be a self-defeating strategy. We should continue to be outgoing and embracing the world. I think that is a strategy that is compatible with the European business model. It's also something that allows us to tap sources of growth elsewhere when sources of growth at home might be fairly limited. So that's, I think, a, a huge strategy. I mean, you need to complement that maybe with, with risk management. That's my approach to it. The fact that the world out there is risky is not a problem if you have a strategy that manages to turn, to use the opportunities that are there, but that avoids that risks turn themselves into threats. By that, I mostly mean that we should be more careful to where really risks lie where we can, we should diversify. And I think we see more and more examples of this at a, at a very micro level that, that countries and firms diversify. And really where, where that's not possible, yes, of course, and here again, ability to innovate plays a huge role. You try to develop own capabilities that make you less dependent if you're really exposed to a significant risk elsewhere. But generally, yes, my, my, my thinking is that you should be, should continue to be a very outgoing power, one that engages with many partners across the world. And that is also seen as a sort of pillar of stability in the world, as a, as a trading partner that's reliable and peaceful and that you don't have to worry about too much. If I can add, I mean, I wrote this book to a large extent while being in Florence, and that's, of course, an interesting historical analogy because Florence was this amazing trade power in Renaissance Europe and later didn't really manage to retain this influence as a city. Yet the city as such retains a huge amount of soft power. I mean, it is really a very attractive destination to go to. But more than that, I think the the Florentine families that were really influential in Renaissance Florence, to some extent, have managed to retain their, their business acumen. It's just that much of this business takes place through companies that operate worldwide and are not, no, no longer so much based in, in Florence. And to some extent, this anecdote can maybe be a bit of a model for Europe. Indeed. Now, um, to come back to your book again, you talk about climate change in your book. So how, where do you see sort of climate change coming into the geoeconomic analysis? And also there is a discussion going on, not just in Europe, but elsewhere as well, whether we should use trade policy in order to increase the costs for those countries that aren't undertaking similar measures to reduce carbon emissions as, for instance, Europe does or other parts of the world does. So what do you think about that idea? Yes, yeah, so climate change, I think, is going to be a central, if not the central policy challenge for the next 20, 30 years to, to really make use of the small moment of time that we have left to really yeah, do something about global warming before it is too late. And that is going to have repercussion on 
almost all policy areas, including trade. So we've, we've seen that the EU is going to be much more aggressive in carbon pricing and without any complementing policies that would maybe reduce the EU's competitiveness. It might lead to, lead to leakage of production. So that's why the Commission has been uh, thinking about introducing the carbon border adjustment mechanism. What I argue in the book is that the carbon border adjustment mechanism is the second best strategy. That I think we currently have a moment of opportunity where basically the big trading nations, which are also the big emitters, face the same policy problem. How do we get serious about uh, curbing emissions and the economic fallout of that while remaining competitive? And you have China that pledged carbon neutrality by 2060. You have the EU that pledged it by 2050. I think Japan and Korea have also pledged by 2050. The US hasn't pledged anything, but is pursuing an ambitious climate policy. So I think we, we currently have a unique moment of opportunity that the big industrial nations and the big emitters get together and think of ways to tackle this together. And that's a huge challenge because not all of these countries are choosing the same policy tools. My understanding is that the US is not so much moving in the direction of carbon pricing, but more regulating about the energy mix. But I do think there are ways to, to find compatibilities that make it easier to address this common challenge without having to resource to measures like the carbon border adjustment mechanism that might be perceived as protectionist and just continue to uh, to contribute to poisoning of global trade relations. You also mentioned the geopolitics or geoeconomics of, of energy relationships, and that's something absolutely interesting and complicated. I mean, to some extent, it can have huge political consequences when countries that currently have as their business model the, the export of fossil, fossil energy no longer have this primary source of income and they see their global influence diminishing, yet they, they are globally ambitious powers. So what, what will they do? What will it do to countries in North Africa maybe if they really become uh, chief providers of green energy? And how does the political environment react there? How will they use this maybe newfound power vis-a-vis -vis the European Union? These are fascinating questions, and it's it's worth to, to think about those more. I am going to urge all of you who are joining this webinar to raise your hand if you'd like to join the discussion. We have received a couple of questions, and I'm going to bring some of, of these up. One of them, Kristen, is about the WTO, and, and you have already talked about how liberal globalization was basically shaped by the institutions and the rules that governed us over the past couple of decades, which led to sort of less opportunity or less perhaps need for countries to use more raw power politics in order to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Now, we all know that the WTO may not be in its most healthy state as it has been through history, but if you look at sort of the 
the, the forces of geoeconomics now and you put WTO into that function, would you say sort of can you make an optimistic case, an optimistic proposition for why the WTO should have more of a greater role in the future? Or do you think that these broader forces are just going to wash over the institutional framework and make it very, very difficult to return the world to a type of globalization that we had until a decade ago or so when when we had more of a centrality for these institutions and we had ongoing negotiations taking place in Geneva about rules and market access? So I think you can absolutely have an optimistic vision about WTO reform and the fact that we've seen more geoeconomics in the last years is, has, has reinforced this. Yet, I mean, this is a hugely complicated enterprise. And although I, I want to be optimistic about it, I'm not entirely sure if we're going to see it to play out exactly in that way. But let me develop this, this answer a bit more. I mean, we've been talking about WTO reform for quite a long time now. At Bertelsmann-Stiftung, this is, this is the primary research project that I've been busy in over the last three or four years. And there are lots of good ideas how this institution can be reformed, how it can be made more effective, how it can be made more relevant. Yet at the same time, we haven't really seen much action. Much of that has to do, I would argue, especially in, in recent years with the Trump administration that really played a hugely destructive role at the WTO and that hasn't, that has been talking the talk of WTO reform, but has not really been open to tackle any concrete steps. But in a way that was maybe a service in, in, in disguise, because I think it made everyone realize how much stable environment, a rules-based environment, really is something that serves anyone and that the WTO has a vital function and that it needs updating. So I think maybe now we see a moment of opportunity. We have, we have a new US administration which, well, has said that they're going to be much more multilateral. So I hope that means that they are willing to invest political capital into the WTO. Maybe a first positive sign is that they lifted the blockage of the nomination of the new deputy uh, director general for the WTO. We have a new director general and uh, she looks like a very ambitious personality and will bring some dynamism to the institution. I think that's, that's guaranteed, although of course the rule of the director general is limited. The EU has in the new trade strategy really put WTO reform at the forefront. So I think that's that's also good. And I think it really depends now. I mean, can we can we get political buy-in and political capital from key players to restore the functions of the WTO that have been disabled over the past years, like the appellate body, and have a forward-moving agenda on WTO reform? I think there is a good chance to get that buy-in, but by no means guaranteed. What is sort of an indispensable element of this succeeding is to find more flexible ways of moving forward. Waiting for consensus amongst 164 nations really is, is not the way to, to get this juggernaut to move. 
that doesn't mean that we depart completely from the consensus principle, which, which has its merits, but consensus to move forward amongst smaller groups of countries, I think is actually a fairly good way forward. And I think it's fair enough to give those members who, who don't want to be part of reinforced cooperation some assurances. I think that's, that's probably fine to talk about. But it wouldn't be fine to really hold up progress altogether at the WTO. So I think with a more flexible setup and more political buy-in, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that WTO reform can go somewhere. And that would be really good. Another question we received relates to a discussion that we had initially when we started this conversation, which was about how globalization, as we've thought about it, may may have changed. So the question is really about whether we are seeing stronger patterns of regionalization of trade and interdependencies in the world. I think sort of at least conceptually we could think about a prior form of globalization, especially strong from the 1980s onwards, going up perhaps to the global financial crisis where we had more of a globalization of trade in the sense that new countries came in and participated in trade. We diversified the trade relationships we had now has that changed so that the geoeconomic trends are leading us more into a regional trade structure uh, and if so, so is it reasonable to think that in the future we're going to have sort of one regional block around europe one around china one around america so i think there is that we do see a trend to regionalization and there are many reasons for this. Whether that means though that we will have a fragmentation of the world economy into blocks, I'm not so sure. So let me turn to the first part of the argument. Why do we have regionalization and why do I think it's going to increase? Part of it, I think, has just something to do with the technology of production. We see more and more automated production. We see production that is really driven by an internet of things set up where supplies are sourced automatically and they have to, to arrive quickly. And that is, of course, something that we see regionally. So production is more flexible. It targets specific demand by consumers. We see more and more products that are produced, customized to a specific customers' uh, specifications. And that would theoretically be possible to, to do elsewhere. But a customer doesn't want to wait for ages until the product arrives. Also, if you need further inputs in the production that maybe come from elsewhere, again, the time that it takes to deliver those really becomes a crucial factor. And the technological developments, the increasing willingness to have a product pretty quickly, really, I think, is a, is a driving force there. Of course, you have also the trade policy development that you see more and more regional trade agreements. So regional trade is, is easier than maybe global worldwide trade is. So that, of course, helps these, these tendencies. So in, in that sense, I think it's, it's a completely normal development that doesn't actually have necessarily a geo-economic component to it. But I think that doesn't mean the end of globalization in the sense of a really global exchange of goods, because there's still an argument that 
there's some there's quite a lot of products that really don't fall into this category that I've described of specialized high-end products. There's quite a lot of very simple products that you just churn out that are not customized. And I think there you really have the classical arguments of economies of scale and availability of the production factors that are relevant for those goods that determine the place of production. So I think for that you really do have a continued very global trade. And also, if it's true that the global economy is going to be riskier and more uncertain, then having more regionally diversified production is also a really good way that if one region, for example, experiences, let's say for argument's sake, uh, an epidemic that's hitting, say, just Europe, but not Asia, and that means that European production is much lower than it would otherwise be. Having production capabilities elsewhere maybe work as a bit of a buffer. And in, in those cases, you would see international trade to, to basically help overcome a shortage of supply in one specific region of the world. That also relates to another question that we've received, which is basically making a comment. And let's put it to you and see what you say, Christian. So the comment is that during the pandemic, trade was extraordinarily beneficial in the sense that we could access things that we couldn't produce ourselves. And now we have a discussion, which is that we want to make us less dependent on the rest of the world. So how do you get these two different observations to hang together? On the one hand, we were significantly helped by international trade during the pandemic. On the other hand, now we want to make us less dependent on, on others. I agree absolutely with the first part of this. I think international trade was absolutely helpful in dealing with some of the negative effects of this, this pandemic. And the expert bans of PPE, for example, that we've seen at some point in 2020 were absolutely unhelpful as I think we've, we've all discovered. I'm also not happy about the export control regime and the way it's been announced of the European Union. I think that undermines what I've said about the importance of EU being perceived as a stable and reliable partner. So I, I completely agree with that being open to trade and being reliable is, is really an important factor in this. Yet what we've also discovered in the pandemic is that there are clusters of, of risk, maybe if you like, that could have negative effects. So the classical example, I think by now is that 80-90% of paracetamol production is taking place in India. And in, in some European Union countries, because there was an export ban, there were shortages of paracetamol. So this is, this is for me not an example to say we need to make paracetamol ourselves because there must be good economic reasons why we don't make it. But to me, this is an argument to say, okay, this is a case where we need to identify where do we have an over-dependence on a single entity, be it a country, a company, maybe a region. And in those cases, see where can we actually diversify? Where does it make sense to, to have a second supplier from this? And maybe also in, if such a second supplier doesn't exist, invest in creating it. That doesn't mean so much turning away from trade. I mean, you still rely on trade to solve the issue. 
But you do make sure that if disaster strikes at some point of the supply chain, that doesn't mean the collapse of the whole of the supply chain. All right, thank you very much. We have a question from uh, Georges uh, Riaboy. Well, my feeling is that we are discussing the wrong agenda because from at this time what we are discussing is a two-speed WTO. What we are discussing is getting rid of the MFN principle. What we are discussing is to get rid about the developing country treatment and so on and so forth. And this is coming not from uh, people from the street, but for example, uh, was proposed by Charlene Bashevsky uh, 10 or 15 days ago. So my question is that we are uh, pointing to the wrong tree. A comment in terms of background. The EU is not the main trader of the world. The EU is having a participation of around 10.5% or something like that. And the rest is intra-trade kind of operation. So the importance of that in terms of the global economy is completely different. And I would try to, to understand what, what it means. And the last point is there is a paper that was approved in the last few days by the International Trade Committee at the European Parliament on the farm to food program, establishing a link between, for example, uh, geographical indications and sustainable development. I am failing to see the link of paying some fees of having a monopolic situation for geographical indications and the reduction on, on GHG emissions. I can't see that, that kind of a link. So this, I would like to have your comments. And then the last and most important comment, what do you think about the permanent approach of increasing regulatory uh, protectionism in the framework of the, the European Union? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. There was a lot there, Christian. Do you Indeed. want to start with one of them? Let me do them in the, the order that they came. So in WTO report, yes, in, in a way, a reinforced plurilateral cooperation within the organization is departure from the principle that all the benefits are shared equally. Yet I think that's still acceptable and not sort of an inclusive type of cooperation if, and this is an important if, those reinforced plurilaterals remain open for other countries to join later on. As I understand this, this is exactly the idea. And when I was talking about giving assurances to those countries that are not maybe inclined to join in the first place, that could take the form of making sure they don't have an extortionate price to pay whenever they decide to join. So I think that to some extent addresses this. You've also mentioned development. I mean, I'll try to be brief for the sake of time, but on development, I think nobody really wants completely to depart from a special and differentiated treatment. It's more that those countries that are no longer developing countries should graduate. And maybe also for developing countries, it makes more sense to get to a development treatment that is emphasizing building capabilities rather than just giving them a blanket exemption of something, which isn't really helping their development of capabilities. 
I think there is one about the importance of, of trade. So what I did in my book actually to, to get rid of this distorting effect that there is a lot of intra-EU trade and that makes the EU look particularly big, I subtracted that from EU trade performance and you have really the, the interaction between the EU and the rest of the world, not the intra-EU trade. And point stands, it's still block that is trading quite, quite a lot and more than, for example, the US though. So that doesn't really change the mathematics completely. Then there is the point on the regulatory cooperation, but there was an uh, or protectionism, but there was another before that. Can you help me remember what it was? It was about sort of the farm to fork. Uh, uh, farm to fork. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, there's, this is really such a specialized area that I can't say much about it. I mean, I can imagine, imagine that in some uh, cases, there might be actually a link between sustainability and geographical indications, but not necessarily in all of them. And how strong it is, I don't know. The regulatory protectionism bit. I mean, to some extent, I think it actually really makes sense and it is beneficial for the EU to use its regulatory power. And that's not necessarily protectionism. I mean, in, if you look at the digital agenda, I think the EU has played a really, really important part to bring debates about data usage and guarantee of privacy to the fore. And I think that was a very positive effect. Sometimes this regulation isn't really done in a very slim and efficient way. So along with protecting consumers and pursuing legitimate goals, you also actually create obstacles that harm businesses. And there I'm, I'm all in favor of, of adopting a more streamlined approach, but I think it is right to pursue those, those goals. And I think the EU has played a beneficial role in bringing these issues to the fore. We had other questions from participants as well that uh, several of them related to the, the need for Europe to be open to immigration, especially in light of the broad demographic changes, which of course also leads us into a competition about labor and having access to high-skilled labor that we need in order to get innovation going in companies and other organizations. We also had questions related to Africa and where Africa was going to sort of uh, be in this broader geoeconomic globalization that is emerging and whether alliances with Europe could help African countries to uh, be more sort of powerful in, in their ability to respond to these trends. So alas, we won't have time to go into all of these now. I think many of these are covered in your book, so I again will uh, recommend each and every one of you to download the book and read it. Christian, thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you so much for writing the book in the first place and now sort of having this opportunity to step into your world and your analysis and sort of how you see things are shaping up. I think this was very, very useful and uh, I look forward to welcome you again in the future uh, when we're going to talk about these things. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and I enjoyed this very much. I would just say uh, for those who had questions that were unanswered, feel free to send me an email. You find my email address if you Google me. I'd be glad to get back to you. But many thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. And also thank to all of you who stayed with us and joined the conversation. Thank you and see you again in the future. <music>